This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. My name is Carly. I'm a second year MBA student and a teaching assistant for Professor Stephanie Curry's course, Leading Diversity in Organizations. I'm excited to welcome you to the Leading Diversity at Wharton speaker series. Our moderator, Dr. Stephanie Creary, is an assistant professor of management here at the Wharton School. Professor Creary is an organizational scholar, and her research focuses on the identity and diversity work that individuals and leaders engage in to promote inclusion and improve the quality of relationships across differences at work. As many of you know, Professor Curry teaches a course leading diversity in organizations to Wharton undergraduate and MBA students and is the creator of the Leading Diversity at Wharton speaker series. Today, she will co-moderate our discussion on how to make the luxury industry more inclusive with two special guests. Our first guest is Kalpana Bagamane. Kalpana has been the Chief Diversity, Inclusion, and Talent Officer at Caring since October 2019 where she aligns and executes Caring's global diversity, inclusion, and mission strategy. Caring is a luxury group whose brands include Gucci, Balenciaga, and Saint Laurent. This includes identifying and prioritizing initiatives to help create an inclusive environment that embraces and encourages diversity. Kalpana also takes the lead on development of talent strategy, where diversity and inclusion are at the core of attracting, recruiting, developing, and retaining talent. She is a first-generation immigrant born in the United States to Indian-born parents and the mother of two Gen Z children. Kalpana has 27 years of experience integrating diversity and inclusion across businesses, leadership, and talent advisory and education. She received her MBA from Northwestern Kellogg School of Management and has lived in the UK, Germany, Switzerland, Hong Kong, and Singapore, and now France across 30 years. Our second guest is Atira Charles. Dr. Charles has been the CEO of Charles Consulting Group, a boutique consulting firm focusing on issues of diversity, inclusion, and wellness that has worked with many municipalities and global Fortune 500 organizations. As of November 2020, she's joined the executive leadership team of Moe Hennessy as the head of inclusion, diversity, and equity for North America, where she is thrilled to make this shift to shape, direct, and transform the DNI strategy of this global organization while also contributing to the goals of parent company, LVMH, Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy Group. Her expertise revolves around identity management in the workplace, organizational management of differences, wellness practices, communication, and feedback processes within diverse organizations. Dr. Charles' research has been published across numerous academic journals and media outlets. She's a TEDx speaker and was even nominated by the Obama White House as a changemaker for the 2016 State of the Women's Summit. Kalpana and Dr. Charles, thank you so much for joining us today. And Stephanie, without further ado, I'll pass it over to you. Uh, thank you so much. So delighted to be back here with you all today. And Carly has done such a fantastic job uh, pulling together um, our program today, coordinating our speakers. Carly is also graduating in May. So that means I am very sad and I will miss her so much. She started off as a student in my diversity course, became a TA, and, and certainly now is doing such a fantastic job. So Carly, thank you for your contributions to the course over the years. And, and certainly thank you for today's uh, helping to pull together today's panel. I'm absolutely excited to be here today with Kalpana and Atira for so many reasons. Um, Atira, I've known a long time since we were both uh, PhD students. Um, and so I am just absolutely delighted to see how she has made this transition from the world of academia to um, really deeply embedding herself into LVMH as um, what I would consider a, a rock star uh, diversity executive. And so I'm so delighted to have that connection and to have this connection with you here today, Atira. Uh, Kalpana, your organization and I go back a couple of years ago to where I had the opportunity to share um, at an event in the in the south of the south of France um, some of my insights on inclusion and bias and how do we reduce bias in in human resource practices. So it's wonderful to be connecting with you again this way. Though I wish I was back in the south of France. I'm not going <laughs> I know you're well, in we Paris now, right? So Kalpana's calling Ooh, in. Yeah today, so happy to have you. And, and I think this topic is, is certainly one that I'm interested in with respect to uh, diversity, equity, inclusion in the luxury industry, partly because of 
I, I was able to deep dive into this topic a little bit more with uh, caring. But prior to that, many of my students know I was a professor at Cornell and particularly at the Cornell Hotel School. And the Cornell Hotel School um, has deep roots in, in many aspects of hospitality, but particularly luxury hotels. And so for me, this is now going back several years of understanding some of the complexities of luxury segments, including luxury hotels, luxury fashion and goods, and also um, wine and spirits. So I think this is gonna be a great conversation today as we begin to unpack some of the particulars of this of this industry um, and then relate that to what we know broadly about diversity, equity, inclusion. Okay, so just a quick note for the audience before I dive into the questions. We're gonna be taking um, questions from the audience at the end of our time together. Um, so please enter them in the Q&A window throughout our conversation. Um, I'll monitor those questions and try to incorporate as many as possible uh, towards the end of our, our, our talk today. And so let's get started. I think we're eagerly awaiting um, hearing from our guests, Kalpana and, uh, and Atira. And I just want to open us up by just engaging us in a bit of a conversation around luxury industries specifically and how we begin to make these luxury industries more inclusive. And so I think it's important to note that by design, many luxury um, businesses are actually exclusive, right? That's what we see in the media is that it's something that supposedly only a few people are supposed to touch. Um, and so it seems a little bit of a paradox, right? Is this idea that an exclusive industry can actually begin to embrace the principles of diversity, equity, inclusion. So with that, I would love to talk about the historical context of the luxury industry. Um, can you help us to understand the dynamics of inclusion and exclusion in the luxury industry and how those have evolved over time? Atira, uh, we'll start with you. Sure, hi everyone, it's a pleasure to be here with you all today. You know, th this idea of inclusive versus exclusive, of course, is the, the daily conversation, right? When we're talking strategy within this industry. But I like to say this, the industry is exclusive by product, but should not be exclusive by identity, right? So it's one thing to say that there are products, right? That are for exclusive groups and everyone can't access it. And there's certain dollar points and that type of thing. But I think when we're really talking about inclusive versus exclusive, when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, it's how do we make sure we're not exclusive by identity, right? And so when we think about that, that's race, that's gender, that's various ethnicities. Now, where it gets a little gray, right? And I think the industry is still sorting this out is, how do we become inclusive with socioeconomic? When by definition, you know, our price structure is high. And how do we also responsibly acknowledge that there is an intersection of things such as race and socioeconomic status? And so it really becomes this organizational dilemma that's really rooted in this larger societal dilemma. Papana, what are your thoughts on this, the dynamics of yeah, inclusion? And, and so just to build on that, so if we look at, you know, the question around history. So if we think about it, and I say this humbly, I've only been in the industry for, for 18 months, but, you know, this industry is going through massive change. And if we think about it, it started as relatively a small community anchored in, in France and Italy primarily, people who created the product, who designed it, the craftsmen, the leather makers who made the product, the people who bought the product. You know, it, it was, relatively speaking, a small community with a very far-reaching impact. Now, it's an incredibly big community, thanks to um, everyone being able to carry the world around in, a, in their back pocket or handbag. So the world has become a lot larger, which I think actually, instead of exclusive, has actually made luxury more accessible and aspirational. I'd like to focus on the aspirational piece. So if you think about all the changes, our consumers are evolving, right? Emerging markets are now driving the growth. Some brands have over 50% of their uh, consumers are, are from Asia. Uh, how we speak to our consumers um, you know, it's no longer focused primarily on press and events. It's moving more to looking at social media influence, influencers online. You know, we're, we're having more Gen Z and Gen Y and, and are predicted to have even more of those as, as consumer segments. How we reach, how we're selling the product is evolving. Um, the, the pandemic, of course, has fast-tracked that. But e-commerce now is a much bigger part of our strategy. So, you know... We've had to grapple with 
a lot of change in a short amount of time. And I would say compared to other industries like fast moving consumer goods, we've done it faster and earlier, right? So I, I would say that we're trying to be aspirational, which is actually more inclusive. And we want to meet the consumers where they are. And I think the last thing we want to do is exclude people. So if creativity and innovation are the heartbeat of this industry, which I firmly believe, then having more diverse perspectives engaged in an inclusive environment will only strengthen that creativity and innovation. Super exciting moment for the industry. Okay, okay. So let me just sure. sort of dive a little bit uh, more deeply into this. And certainly, Atira, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot it back to you. But as you're thinking about your role specifically in this idea of creating greater inclusion in this exclusively productly oriented luxury industry, um, what does that mean that you tackle in your day-to-day job? What is your actual role in this conversation? Really good question. You know, a primary focus for us right now is building our talent diversity pipeline. Let's just be honest, because it is and has, like I kind of said, been a historically small, you know, space, there are a lot of people that don't even know the opportunities that exist within the luxury goods, right? A lot of people are not aware of the fact that many of our brands are parts of larger groups, that once you can get into one house or Maison or brand, you're now able to travel throughout the group with different mobility opportunities. Like there's so much opportunity and luxury that I don't think a lot of people know about. Um, And then guess what? Sometimes the luxury industry can be a little incestuous, right? So then that opens up into cross group, right? Mobility. And so it's really this larger world that's kind of behind the veil. And I think part of our job is to kind of bring the veil up and really show the beauty and artisanship, right, and craftsmanship of our work, while also letting everybody know that they have a seat at the table. And, you know, we just experienced a big moment in our organization yesterday with um, the partnership that was announced with Jay-Z, with what everybody knows as Ace of Spades and that champagne line. And that was a big move for business and for culture, right? And so these are those types of things and these moments that how do we bring together the product and the people? How do we bring together consumers and the talent? And how do we make sure that the way in which we present ourselves to the larger world mirrors the world we live in? And how do we do that authentically, right? And with meaning. So I just want to follow up on that because there's a link here certainly between, as I see it, uh, between the strategy that LVMH historically has had and certainly the strategy that Caring has had. So from Caring, as, as Carly rattled off just some of the of the brands, Gucci's fundamentally a, a large part of the Caring portfolio. And I think about um, LVMH, I specifically think about Hennessy and now this champagne. And I think about how much those brands in and of themselves, Gucci and Hennessy, and in this case now with Jay-Z's champagne, are, are embedded in African-American culture. I think about all of the music videos I've watched or all of the events, different events that I've watched that in which you see uh, very prominent celebrities, Black celebrities, from these brands. And so I guess I was sort of thinking about that a little bit more with respect to um, the accessibility issue is knowing that um, how you've already been moving down this path and, and how sort of the company um, thinks about that going forward with respect to, to its, its talent pipeline. I know you all don't work on the product side, but I know as you're thinking about recruiting and sourcing talent, these fundamentally, I would say, become um, part of the ideas. I don't know, Atir, if you had anything else to say about that, but I wanted to um, open it up to Alpana as well as to think about your role and then think about the con- the connections to community, which I think you've already um, had for some time. For sure. You know, within our organization, we have brands such as Hennessy that have had a long history, right? A long history embedded in the Black community from being one of the original um, sponsors in co-founders of the Urban League to NAACP to being one of the first brands to actually put in ads in Black 
media publications to having the face, right, of Black people representing a luxury brand decades ago, that, that was innovative and it was ahead of the time, but it was also honoring the consumer, right? We talk a lot about legacy in the luxury industry and legacy comes through with consumer also. And that's not just specific to the Black community. It's the same with the Asian community, right? We're talking about decades and hundreds of years with the Hennessy brand, right, from a global perspective. And how does that look now? It looks like not just selling bottles, right? It looks like creating the Thurgood Marshall Hennessy Fellows Program, where we take in 12, 10 to 12 students every year and put them through a personal professional development program and have externships and job opportunities for them at the end. It looks like our unfinished business initiative where after COVID, we created a fund for Asian, Latin, and, and um, African-American small business owners. It looks like making sure that we have meaningful programming, right? Not just simply multicultural marketing, right? And I think our, you know, in this industry, we have to start to move from multicultural marketing to meaningful and purposeful engagement. Another thing for Black History Month, our whole model this year is it's not just a month, it's a movement. So this idea of taking it outside of the marketing month and really understanding, talking about the Black entrepreneurs, talking about Black Wall Street, talking about the Tulsa massacre within a luxury brand, within a wines and spirits brand, is it, that's what allows us to connect to and authentically engage what we know our consumers value. And in this era, that's what people value, what's going on in their communities and the identities that matter to them. Alpana, your thoughts on your role in vision? Yeah. Absolutely. And and I, you know, I fully um, support what Atira is saying and our brands are doing some fabulous stuff externally in terms of, as I said, meeting our consumers where they are. Um, but I think also, it's also important to think of all the things we need to address internally, right? And this is why, you know, when you talk about talent, um, just the way the, the role of caring is constructed is quite unique. It's diversity, inclusion, and talent. So talent, we're a single team. And so it enables us to embed DNI interventions across the entire talent journey. Okay. Which allows us to just change at a much faster, faster pace. So I, you know, I inherited a talent learning team and said, lovely to meet you. You're also now the DNI team. And so this is a game changer in that, uh, you know, I, in other, you know, in other organizations, you often have to then convince or influence somebody on the HR side to, to embed and do these things around inclusive recruitment. I just have to talk to this great team and, and, uh, you know, uh, the chief people officer who's a big support to say, hey, this is what we need to do and we can go fast on this. And so we need to make sure that, you know, the focus, you know, my aspiration is that we focus on, in, on internally changing the perspective and behavior of our internal colleagues, and that will come out externally and what is, is, uh, is gonna, what we're going to see. So we are focused on, um, we're launching an, a very in-depth inclusive recruitment process. So we are teaching people and raising awareness around what is diversity, what is inclusion. Let's unpack that, right? And, 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 you know, a lot of people think it's one term. And so, you know, how do we make sure that people understand the difference? And that caring, how we define it, is at a very broad perspective. It is not just, you know, what, what people often will first instinctively say, it's about gender and it's about, and it's about cultural ethnic background. But, you know, operating in the global context that we do, of course, it's a very broad definition. It's generation. It is sexual orientation. It is personality style. Extroverts and introverts. I would argue that every team needs a good balance of both. It's thinking style. It's big picture. It's structured and thinking. We need every team needs both. And so how we define and how we raise awareness around this is really important. And so as we go through and look at the entire talent journey and how are we making sure we're bringing in the right perspectives, that DNI is the, the, the awareness around DNI is being increased in everything we do when we're designing a program. Do we have the right perspectives in the room? 
So it's really making sure that structurally, because I think any approach to looking at DNI, you have to look at behavioral change and you have to look at structural change. And um, both take time and and require you know um, a good amount of effort. And uh, and and I think really for us the focus is let's start by raising awareness. Let's listen to each other. Let's learn. Let's unlearn. Let's challenge our own thinking. Right. So we are we you know we're launching initiatives that are focused on let's make sure we're sitting down and having conversations with people because we 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 can't solve problems that we don't understand. And the only way to understand is to talk to people. And so when we, we, we have initiatives like listening sessions and diverse mentoring for our senior leaders and, you know, so we can hear those voices. Um, you know, you know, I, I, it's incredible the feedback you get. You know, people said, someone said to me the other day, you know, I, I had no idea. You know, I sat, I talked to somebody who I've sat next to for two years and I had no idea what she experiences on, you know, a daily, on a daily basis. So, you know, for us, it's let's make sure, given the global context and what diversity means across many different markets, we need to make sure we're sitting in this, this state of let's listen, learn, but unlearn, because that is key, I think, to sort of creating the empathy we need that will lead to the behavior change while we're looking at all the structural day-to-day stuff. So certainly each of you has worked in and with uh, businesses in a variety of industries. So can you help us to understand a little bit more specifically? um, Well, let's say generally first. What are the general barriers um, or resistance that leaders face with respect to making their organizations more inclusive? And then what might be some more specific barriers and challenges that exist in the luxury industry in particular. So Atira, let's start with you. So some things that, some themes in general with the luxury industry, you know, that I've noticed and am noting to make sure that we take care of is this idea of who fits, right? I call it the F word of DNI, right? This idea of, oh, does this person fit here? Do they fit in this industry? Do they, do they have the experience, are they like us? And here's the irony, that doesn't always necessarily mean race or ethnicity. It's kind of this, um, how much access have you had in our world, right? So it's like love is its own thing, like its own identity, right? Or wines and spirits is its own identity. And how do people break through that? And I think that we have to, as an industry, start redefining the profile of talent that quote unquote fits. And I think there's two ways that happens. I think that's focusing and making sure that on the surface level, like diversity, right, categories, that we have more diversity so that there aren't such disparate gaps, right? Mm-hmm. But then I also think that we have to start to look at transferable skills from transferable industries that work, right? Marketing is marketing. Sales is sales, Right. And there can be top talent that just hasn't had the opportunity to have worked with an industry already, especially with our younger talent and our emerging talent. Because if the industry by nature is under their groups underrepresented, and then we're saying we're picking from people with industry experience, it's just like throwing a ping pong ball off the same wall, right? It's, it's not going to change. And so we have to start to be more innovative in where we source our talent from. And it can't simply just be from industry. So, Kapana, can you talk to us about your insights on what you see are the barriers and challenges? And also, how are these how do these compare? How do they differ? Are they quite similar to any other industry? Yeah. Yeah. And I I I try try to reframe it rather than barriers, rather to say it's it's um, more lack of awareness. Mm-hmm. Right. So I that I like to believe that people have good intentions and and want to do the right thing. I don't think people get out of bed every morning and say, I'm, I'm going to say the wrong thing or think the wrong thing or I'm going to be biased today. So for me, I feel it's it's more of a challenge. So I think um, and I think quite a few of them are really across all industries. But I think one that might be a bit more unique to, to a faster moving industry is 
the pace of change. Um, so, you know, we are an industry that moves very fast. We launch collections continuously. We design, we, we market, we sell, we see a result. We are very much action biased. We'd like to see results. We see a problem, we want to fix it. So I have a great, um, a great problem or challenge and then I have leaders who just want to move super fast. They see that this is important. They want to do something about it. It's, that's not the question. It's how do we make sure that we are doing it at the right pace? Because changing behavior, I think, hands down, anyone will say, um, especially behavior that's been formed over decades of life, um, is, 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 is time-consuming and difficult. And so, um, you know, have to remain vigilant and tenacious and super patient. And, you know, I, I, what I often say is, look, as long as tomorrow is better than today, then we're, we're going in the right direction. That's a good thing. So I have to often say, look, if we move too fast, we risk losing people. And this is something we, we can't risk. So whether that's understanding that people are at very different points of the journey as individuals, as houses. So, you know, we have a portfolio of houses and every house is different, you know, has a different brand DNA, has, you know, has, has, has their own unique culture as well. Um, you know, where they are on the journey, their scale, their pace of growth, all of that is different. And all of that has to be taken into consideration. And so, you know, it's really important that um, we think about looking at this as a very bespoke approach across each one of these houses, because each one of them will have a different approach and, and will have a different challenge to solve. So I think it's, you know, this is not one size fits all. And that's, you know, something in, in our construct of, sort of a federation of brands and how we are, how we're, how we are organized is that it's not one, one size fits all from the fact that we have different entities, but we also have different cultures uh, to deal with and, and to, to really make sure we navigate with the right level of respect. So I think, um, I think that's unique to any fast moving industry is that we have to be thoughtful in our approach on how we, how we manage these things. And again, we're trying to undo biases and, and, and understand the lived experience of people. And this has all been, you know, decades in the making. And so decades in the making means it takes a bit of time to, for people to build the muscle to challenge themselves and, and, um, and, and what they do. I think the other unique thing about um, luxury with any creative industry is that it's, it's an industry that's led by a creative and the rational. So we have a creative director and we have a CEO. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's face it, DNI is an emotional topic. It's an emotional topic. Um, you inspire people around and you motivate people to change through different ways. It could be inspirational through, you know, morally, this is the right thing to do. Um, you know, this is who we are. This is our values. Um, we must um, leverage the collective intelligence of our teams uh, for better creativity. And, and, and so it's the rational side as well. So I think in luxury, we have the experience and we're accustomed to having both the creative and the, and the rational um, living harmoniously together. Um, so I think that's actually an advantage um, for the industry is that we can speak to both in this topic and it's well received. So I just wanted to add some thoughts as I think about what I learned about the luxury hotel industry. And, and I also had a classmate in my PhD program. He's a professor at Harvard Business School now, and he studied um, the Swiss watch industry, which is a luxury industry. Um, and so as I think about these two relative to the industries that we're talking about today, this notion of legacy and quality is really baked into everyday decision-making such though that sometimes they don't move fast in these industries. Luxury hotels do not necessarily move as fast as luxury fashion does, nor does the, the Swiss watch um, industry. And what's been fascinating is to see, um, you know, if we were to compare, so if we actually were able to break down the luxury segment into those that are sort of 
you know, always trying to stay on top of what's coming around the corner, the latest trends and getting ahead out in front. I would say that the two um, the two companies, uh, groups that you both represent um, fall into that segment of legacy. And then I, I, I start to believe that perhaps luxury hotels and uh, the Swiss watch, luxury watch, right, industry falls into this other group of a little bit slower moving. Yeah. And so I was wonder, I would wonder if D and I might look differently, at least the pickup and the implementation mm -hmm. might look different in your version of luxury versus theirs. Well, that, that, that builds on what Kabana was saying, because here's another nuance that's very different and unique. The North American context versus non-North American context, right? And which regions drive business? Because sometimes there can be a disconnect, right? Of helping, because let's be clear, all of our groups are, are based in Europe, right? And the European context on one issue looks very different than the North American context on another issue. So even within group, there's a lot of learning and development that has to happen to understand why certain things require certain speed, right, or require certain responsiveness. So if we think about the last year we've all lived, cultural responsiveness was a pillar for everybody, right, to be able to succeed and, and be authentically engage, right, with the market. And so if one region sees something as, oh, we have time on this, and another region sees it as, no, 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 got to do it now, even within group, right? There can be differences in understanding and then also respecting to that point what groups are housed where mostly, right? So you can have a group that's a small house with only a handful of employees, right, in France, and then you have an organization on the North American side on retail, which is humongous on the North American side. The, the employee needs and responsiveness times can look different across brands. So I do think respecting the brands across region, within region, across country, across levels. You know, when I think about, you know, I think sometimes people don't realize how hierarchical and matrix and cross-functional and everything else DNI becomes in luxury. Because so, for example, on our end with LVMH, we have a head of DNI, um, Corey Smith, for LVMH North America, right? And then we have Hayden, who's head of DNI for LVMH Global. Then within Moet Hennessy, we have myself that's the head of DNI for North America, and then we have my counterpart Greg, that is the DNI head for Global. None of us have boxes and arrows that report to each other by structure but we work collaboratively and I see them the most. Mm -hmm. Even though we have our hands on a variety of different things, there's still committees at the LVMH level. There's committees at the MH level and within each other Maison house and brand, right? And so there's so many moving pieces that everything is a group conversation all the time and there's alignment, so that's great. But I can imagine maybe in another space where there is an alignment, that could possibly slow things down. So we're blessed not to have that issue on this side, but I could see in another context, right? How that could possibly be the case too, when everyone in theory at the end of the day is still heading with a common vision, but deciding to take different paths together. So we're starting to hear a couple of um, key um, structures and sort of relational ways of engaging relationally that form the foundation of a strong diversity, equity, inclusion strategy, right? So We've heard about the need to have some sort of understanding of the local context, while also accounting for the fact that you are a, a global brand. We've also heard about sort of the idea of timing and the pace of implementation must be a consideration. What else? Um, how, what else are you thinking about when you're trying to evaluate your own strategy as being strong, if you will? Um, what are some of the other components to that? And is this something that you're thinking about evolving along the way? You've already had to evolve. Um, Kapana, let's get your, your thoughts on that and then we'll move back to sure. Azira. Sure, absolutely. And I guess I would frame that by saying, you know, what's considered a strong strategy for caring will be different for every other organization because you have to be super focused on what makes sense for your organization and structure. I, we don't, ours is a bit of a simpler structure, Atira, so I was 
quite happy. <laughs> he has a lot of, you know, a lot's going on there. Um, and and so so I think for me, um, you know, I think like I said, a good strategy you need to focus on the behavioral um, change and the structural change. But I also think that crafting a strategy is the easy part. The hard part is actually implementing it and for impact. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I think that, and so if I were to focus a little bit on what's key for success and trying to build a strategy, what to think about sort of when you're doing your approach, um, I would say, and I would say anybody interested in, and going into this field should really do the due diligence uh, around leadership because key to this is if you do not have authentic leadership commitment and driving the change that's necessary, um, it's it's very difficult um, agenda to drive. And you know, without you know, I'm lucky I have the CEO chairman who's I who's who's the visionary behind this. Um, the CEOs of the houses and the chief people officer, if I don't have their active voice and support in this, I'm not going to get very far. So if anyone's thinking about going into this, make sure you're doing your due diligence on that because it can be a very, very tough journey otherwise. I would say infrastructure, and Atira touched a little bit about what was going on at LVMH. Um, we have um, set up, there's about, a, about 130 people across all of the houses that are um, members of DNI committees as well as executive sponsors. So every house has an executive sponsor behind this. But most importantly, and again, we again this evolves, you know, and how we do things and how we implement things. We had a, we have a strategy, but how we implement it evolves. And then we realized we really needed to make sure that we had a structured way of getting regional input. Uh, and so we created regional sounding board across house. So there were for us to get input. So when we are designing an initiative, you know, we just launched something last week, you know, I said, oh, it'll take about three, four weeks to launch. And then I said, hang on a minute. I need to, we need to make sure we're speaking to our colleagues in Japan, Korea, China, Southeast Asia, uh, France, Italy, US, making sure that what we're doing is actually going to land and be embraced by those markets. So there are things that are global in nature, but we take the time to understand and respect the cultural and historical perspective of every market that we're in. And, you know, the conversations that we can have in the U.S. are very different than the conversations that we can have in Europe and in every market in, in Asia as well. And so, you know, again, I go back to understanding the stakeholders is key. And because you, you see who your stakeholders are, you have a different voice and, and you, you think about the words you use to, to inspire them, how they're motivated, the channel of communication. But if we, if we launch things that are not relevant, we will lose people. And so it is so important that we take that perspective in to account and make sure, you know, we have to practice what we preach. If I'm telling leaders and team leaders to, to say, okay, look around, what perspectives are you missing in the room right now when you're trying to make a decision? Who's not in the room? Who, you know, what is your blind spot in, 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 in your meeting right now? And go find that. If it's not in the organization, go borrow it and make sure that when you're making these decisions, and designing these initiatives and programs and products that you have the right voices in the room. So we absolutely have to do that. And I would think that I would say the last thing is measuring. So I am a, you know, there's, there's a lot of energy around uh, measuring diversity. And look, I'm, I, I know we have to measure. I get that. It's important that we measure. Um, we have to have a basis to, to start with, and we have to have a uh, and to know where we're going, and we have to hold people accountable. But I get really nervous about this slippery slope of going down this of saying, okay, let's think about having X number of this dimension by X, right? Because the numbers are one thing, but the voices behind the numbers are another. 
And numbers are a moment in time. And so when we're chasing numbers in the stats, I, I, I fear that we really miss out on what's happening in the organization. So it's really important to scratch behind the number. And so when we measure, we think about, yes, you know, where, what can we measure in terms of diversity data, of course, is limited in most markets outside of the U.S. and the U.K., where we can measure um, a bit more. Um, so what we, you know, gender, we can measure everybody. So we have our, our diversity data, but that's why it's important to have the input, the, the, you know, what you, is, is, is the listening piece, is talking to people to see what exactly is happening in the organization. And we'll be, for the first time, adding inclusion uh, questions for our employee engagement survey so we can actually measure inclusion. We can talk about fairness and respect and a sense of belonging. And what that allows people to do is to focus. So a strategy goes nowhere unless you have some focus. And when, you know, if you're sitting and you say, okay, we have these inputs, because again, there is this tendency to want to just run after so many things. And this is not a topic where you boil the ocean. You need to figure out what are the two or three things you have to focus on in your organization that'll drive the needle on inclusion. And for example, it could be a different answer if you're sitting in Gucci US or Gucci Italy or Gucci Southeast Asia because culture and inclusion is where you go into the work into work every day. So it's really important that we are that we enable our leaders with enough data to actually have a focused approach and then measure and make progress. Great. Uh, so, Atura, I want to get your perspective on this, but I also want to give us some time to talk internationally. I mean, you all, you're, you're international brands, and Kalpana, you're actually in Paris right now. So, so Tira, certainly share your insights with us on, like, what it takes to have a successful strategy. But I, I also want you to tell us um, more about that with respect to um, internationally, because I, I think what's interesting are, 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 are companies that, sort of are trying to do relatively similar things with a little bit of customization around the world and those that have a specific country by country strategy. So can you talk to us a little bit more about the internationalization of an effective and strong diversity strategy? For sure. So I sit on our global DNI um, council, which is across region and we have different subcommittees that have different things that you know we focus on, but each of those subcommittees are also international. So we're able to make sure that we're building out this aggregate. Anyone who is affiliated with Moet Hennessy as an employee will have an, an umbrella level of expectation of what DNI means at Moet Hennessy, no matter where you are in the world, right? But once you get into different regions, Back to the point that was made earlier, what is the nuance, right, of that culture? And how do we make sure that the people in that space feel valued, seen, and heard on the identity dynamics that matter there? So in some of our regions, it's that multi-generational age, right, that there's not a lot of proportionate representation there. In some of our um, European countries, we have more challenges with LGBTQIA+, because of some of the let's just say legislative challenge, right? Of certain state, um, certain countries on that side. Clearly on the North American side, racial equity is more of a priority here from a strong social context than anywhere else. And so it really becomes this idea of how do we help it trickle? I don't wanna say trickle down, but trickle across <laughs> the other region, right? Because for example, employee are a norm in the North American space, right, in most organizations, but it's like unheard of around the world in many spaces. So in some of our regions, it's step one in getting an employee network together that is, you know, that rallies around diversity and inclusion, but it's something like, oh, well, North America did that really well in the last two years. Hey, can you share your best practices so that we can implement it over here? It's like, sure, right? Because we all win and we still all are a part of the same organization. And so I think that cross-region communication and allowing who does what best, right? Some regions do employee resource groups best. Another could be handling strategy and recruitment hiring best. Another one could be handling retention, have amazing retention numbers, but then something else is a little wacky, right? 
And so how do we all learn that and how do we get out of our silos? And I think that's the largest issue in a global organization. How do we get out of silos? But guess what I have found? And I've talked to other friends across industry also. The fact that we're doing all this DNI work more aggressively now is helping us in other lanes of the business too, right? Because now there's more information flow that typically wasn't flowing. Now there's more cross-communication about things that people didn't know. Now reporting isn't just reporting into one space. Now we're all like, hey, did you get that? Did you? There's just more communication. I think that adds more value. Um, and to the point about metrics and accountability, right? It's important, but we have to have the quantitative and the qualitative. I tell people all the time, diversity and inclusion is about pulse and feel. There are changes that will happen in an organization that you can never quantify. But if you ask the people, the people will tell you that a vibe has changed. And so we have to make sure, like Kaufman has said, like our action, our bias for action that exists in this industry <laughs> cannot get us in the way of like making people get it, right? Think about how hard it is person to person to get someone to understand how you feel. In an organization, that has to aggregate all the way up. And so there has to be respect for that. Um, and I'm glad like at our organization, we're definitely doing that. So there's actually an audience question that's, that's actually related to my follow-up question for you on this. And, and the, the audience question is acknowledging that, that your groups, your, your companies have European headquarters um, and wanting to understand the challenges and opportunities. I wanna broaden that question to say that, you know, I wanna talk about France for a minute. We like to use France as a, as a, as a counter case to the US often in the context of our, our, our course because France has some very different policies um, that we don't have in the US. And I think it helps the students to understand how you just can't do what you want in, in, in France in the way that you do it in the US. So Asira, can you talk to us a little bit more about the French context um, with respect to obviously being a, a company that has a, a, a presence there, right? And then Kapan, I'm going to ask you to talk to us a little bit about Asia because you've spent so much of your career in Asia. And so considerations as we're just trying to understand a little bit more the nuance of country context. So Atira, back to you. Okay, sure. So when we think about, here's the biggest thing I'll use, I'll kind of make a mini case here. In the last year, we know that Racial unrest that we were handling, you know, here and then dealing with in the U.S. context um, was received differently. So one of the things that we can do here in North America is have race based initiatives, have race focused programs, create recruitment strategies that are rooted in race like we can do race things here. Well, in France, there are different regulations and legislative challenges that allow, that don't allow us to talk and do race the same way over there. In France, it has to be framed as anti-discrimination if it's going to be related to race. But you can't do things that language would be used as targeting a specific racial and ethnic group. And guess what you also can't do? You can't measure race in France. So that becomes a larger issue, right? When one, to, to do certain programs, but then also reporting. Because we can do something here and say, hey, best practice, try it over there. And it's like, oh, we can't do that there, though. But we could do it for gender, right? So there's, a, there's, there's difference in the way race and gender are handled in France versus in the U.S. context, North American context. Race and gender typically can follow the same pathway of programming. And so those are those things you have to know. And I'd be, I do this work and wasn't fully aware of that until I came in. And was like, oh, it's like strong, strong. <laughs> like, okay, well, let's, but guess what it does? And to Kalpana's point about pushing, you know, innovation, instead of seeing it as walls and boundaries and barriers, what do we start figuring out? Bridges and ladders, and I won't say loopholes, but loopholes <laughs> to make sure that we're doing the best that we can to address the needs. Because the reality is, is race is still an issue in France, just like it is anywhere on the earth. Right. So how do we still pay attention to the needs of, let's say, for example, our black employees that are there while also understanding it may look different than it looks here? Thank you. Kalpana, let's hear a little bit more your perspective around um, the global strategy, country by country versus broad. But particularly, can you talk to us a little bit more about considerations in Asia? Yeah, sure. But let me just tag on to the France. So um, 
uh, it, it's not just France. Um, and this is why I go back to saying we need to really understand the cultural and historical perspective of why these things happen differently in other countries. So, you know, it is, it, you know, all of Europe has the same regulation um, and there's historical. So, um, so I wouldn't just juxtapose the U.S. versus France. I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that this is a much broader issue. Um, and so with Asia as well, um, yeah, I spent 21 years there um, working around the region. And it, you know, it's, you know, there's, if you even take one country, India, Indonesia, China, there are countries within countries. You know, there, there's so much diversity that even exists within one country, let alone each. So it's incredibly important that we understand, you know, how these topics, what do they mean in the local context? And, you know, if we think about diversity dimensions, there are countries that, um, as Atira mentioned, we can't talk about sexual orientation or religion or, you know, ethnic, you know, ethnicity. Um, so it's really important that, you know, we also understand how communication style and um, leadership style um, and, you know, the different cultural contexts that really impact sort of what we're doing. So if you you know, you, you, you know, when we're launching listening sessions, for example, and, um, you know, we have the cultural context of um, respect for hierarchy, you know, how we will look at that program in each of those markets, how we market it, how we talk about it, and how we actually roll them out is going to be different. And so, you know, that's what that's what I mean by, you know, we, it's important to pause and look at, you know, each of these countries. And I would say in Asia, I would say you would probably put together, you know, you'd probably say Japan is unique, Korea, greater China. I mean, Australia is very much aligned with maybe even the U.S. and the U.K. As, and, and then you have South Asia, which is Southeast Asia and South Asia, which has a little bit more similarities. Um, but, you know, we still are talking regularly to the people in all those markets to say, okay, how do we say this? You know, what can we say? What can we not say? How do we launch this? Um, and, you know, we, they're learning, you know, but, but what's great is that um, we're finding that we're still, they are, uh, our, our colleagues there are incredibly appreciative of these efforts because it's allowing them to really sort of participate in these topics in, in a way that's really meaningful for them. So I think it's just really important just to take all of that into, into consideration that every market's different. So I have another specific question to for you, um, and it's there are two questions from audience members that as I read into them, I believe that they're about sustaining progress. Um, you know, so one question is acknowledging that there's been a lot of M&A activity um, historically for both of your, or for both caring and LVMH, um, understanding that that creates an opportunity, if we aren't to speak in the word of challenges, but that creates an opportunity for getting these brands, these new brands coming in aligned with D&I. So there's a question around how do you do that? Um, and then there's another question that's acknowledging that leaders come and go. <laughs> leaders of the company and sort of how do you sustain? So this idea is that bringing new people in, whether it's houses or bringing in new leaders, how do you be thoughtful about that as you're trying to keep your diversity strategy going? Atira, do you want to start us off? Sure, no, that, that is a super amazing question because that is the question. I'm gonna speak more so to position and title related to these things. So last year, Moed Hennessy North America gained a new CEO in Seth Kaufman. Um, last year gained a new head of IDE, right? And me. So, and there's no year ever, right? There's been like 2020. So, so much change um, has occurred in general in the context of the organization. Um, it has been very important to me that every move that we make on the IDE side is heavily institutionalized, right? How do we make it a part of the process beyond just a thing a leader is doing or a thing a role is doing? I would never want anybody to think that any of the progress we've made in the last couple of months 
that if I wasn't here, all of a sudden goes away, right? I would hope that none of the progress made that came from our CEO, if he wasn't here, would go away. And I think a key part of leadership is operationalizing and institutionalizing the work so that it lives beyond, right? So that it lives beyond role. And I think that that's a, um, an approach to transformational leadership, right? To make sure that it's bigger than you and it goes beyond you. Um, and that's something that we really focus on here. So if there's a strategy that we have, it's how do we integrate it into our performance assessment processes? Not just place something on top of an already existing thing that can come off easy, right? Even if we think about the way in which we celebrate months, right? All of the different heritage months. How do we make it so that there's a norm that it looks a certain way, even if a person isn't there in another year, three or five or 10, right? And yeah. so I think all, and that's just a message, especially for the young leaders on this call, you know, how are you making your footprint, not just making a name for yourself, right? And I think those two things, you know, have to really be paid attention to. Alpana, your thoughts on this about yeah, the state? I mean, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we that was actually key to how our strategy and approach was to make sure we were having a sustainable um, impact. And I think that, um, you know, that's why we have many different stakeholders. It's not just the leaders. Um, we are focusing on the entire organization, the middle managers. I mean, the middle managers are acutely important because they sort of, uh, they are the first managers for a lot of the new talent that comes in. Um, they, you know, so when we're teaching, um, you know, how do you, how do you be an inclusive leader? We're, we're focusing on the entire organization. You know, there's that great saying, you know, when a leader or a manager leaves the room, it's the culture that takes over. And so, you know, it's really important that, you know, we speak to different audiences and stakeholders, but we speak to everyone. So, um, I think core to this as well is that it's in the values of the organization to begin with. Um, and so when we are, and this kind of relates then to the due diligence, sort of the, the M&A question, um, you know, our, our, um, our CEO and chairman, you know, Mr. Pinot, this is, um, this is, you know, incredibly values-based leader. And if we're looking at an organization, I guarantee you in the due diligence, at the culture and the values of that organization, as that would be an M&A target, and we would be looking at the values of the, of the management team, um, because this is much beyond and much bigger um, than, than, uh, than the acquisition. It's, they, of course, it has to fit into the portfolio. Uh, it has to make sense, but it also has to fit into our values and, and what we believe in as, a, as an organization. Sorry, right. those are my parents. Sorry about that. So we are at time. So I just want to give you each 30 seconds to leave our audience with some thoughts. We, there are many Wharton and UPenn students on the call, some who want to have your job someday, some who just want to be champions for change alongside whatever else they are specializing in. And so how would you advise them to make an impact in an organization like yours going forward in the future. So if you could just sort of give us like your 30 second pitch for how they should be focusing themselves, that'd be a nice way to wrap up. Kalpana, I'll go back to you. And then Atira, you can okay. close it. Um, I would say don't over plan. Uh, I've never planned anything and this is the path where it's led me. Um, I would say the, I'd say the most important uh, competency or the muscle to build is learning agility. To learn how to learn, you have to learn how to unlearn. Uh, it is important that, you know, these roles, and I think any role right now, to be honest, requires uh, an enormous capability to influence. And so make the known unknown. Make the unknown known. Sorry, make the unknown known, right? You, you, the more things are familiar, the better you're going to be able to hand, handle ambiguity. And I used to tell people in my old life um, when they asked for career advice, it's sort of this two by two by two by two by 40 years old. Maybe it's 35 years old now, but I would say try to work for two companies, try to try to experience two different functions, try to work for two different industries 
and try to work for two on two different continents, you know, emerging market, developed market. So again, uh, if you can try to achieve that and be thoughtful and 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 trying to make the unknown known, I think you'll be well set up for any type of role. Thank you, Asira, your thoughts. I think that we have to also understand that this this is character work. Doing DNI work, it's emotional work, it's character work. And if there's three words I could leave everybody with that I think every leader needs to have, you have to have courage, you have to have conviction, but most importantly, you have to have endurance. This type of work can become very emotionally fatiguing. And it's very important to make sure that you have your own self-care strategies as a leader, that you have your own community of people that understand the work <laughs> and you know, make sure that you build a system around you to sustain your sustainability, not just your IDE agenda, your personal sustainability um, to make it through this. So I'm glad through this work, I have gained a new friend in the industry and in doing this work and look forward to having her as well as we move forward. Ah, so with that, it is time to uh, wrap up our discussion. Um, Sincere thanks to both Kapana and Atira for sharing your insights and your expertise. We've learned so much from you today. It's just we're really grateful for you taking time out of your schedule to be here with us. Thanks to everyone else for being here. I hope you found this as fascinating as I have. And I look forward to hearing more of your thoughts on today's conversation. Take care, everyone. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.